Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott, in a message to white supremacist organizations and leaders of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. A jury in Charlottesville awarded more than $26 million in damages after finding the white nationalists who organized and participated in the violent rally liable on a state conspiracy claim and other claims. Our guest is Susan Bro, a resident of Virginia. She is the mother of Heather Heyer, the young woman who was killed on August 12, 2017, when a car plowed into a crowd of counter uh, demonstrators who were protesting the Unite the Right rally. And millions of people across the United States gear up for an extended holiday weekend. Thanksgiving has been an official holiday in the United States since 1863. Most used the occasion to gather with friends and family. Others volunteer to serve meals to unhoused people, but to indigenous people across the Americas, it is a day of mourning. Our guest is Shannon Rivers, who is a Native American rights campaigner. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. A jury has ordered 17 white nationalist leaders and organizations to pay $26 million in damages over violence that erupted during the deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. The jury deadlocked on two key claims but found the white nationalists liable on four other counts in the lawsuit. It was filed by nine people who suffered physical or emotional injuries during the two days of white power demonstrations. Christina Onestead reports. After a near-month-long civil trial, a jury found 17 white nationalists and organizations guilty of conspiracy under Virginia law for the deadly Unite the Right rally that left one civil rights protester dead and dozens more injured in 2017. In all, they'll have to pay $26 million. The lawsuit accused some of the country's most well-known white nationalists of plotting the violence, including Jason Kessler, the Unite the Right's main organizer, Richard Spencer, who coined the term alt-right, and Christopher Cantwell, a white supremacist who became known as the crying Nazi for posting a tearful video when an arrest warrant was issued on assault charges for using pepper spray against counter-demonstrators. White nationalist leader Richard Spencer likened the suit to a form of activism by means of lawsuits. He accused plaintiff's attorneys of using the case to bankrupt him and other defendants. I'm Christina Onestead. Anti-racism protesters were on hand as attorneys walked out of the courtroom. They heckled one of them, Josh Smith, a self-described pro-white advocate. We're not going nowhere. What did y'all come to kill black folks and Jews for? We have never done anything to you people. We only ask to be equal. We have never asked for anything else but equality and justice. And justice. 
justice for all. The jury returns for a second day of deliberations today in the case of three white Georgia men charged with murder, assault, and false imprisonment in the slaying of black jogger Ahmad Arbery. If jurors don't reach a verdict on the nine charges for each of the three by today, they'll take Thanksgiving Day off and return to deliberations on Friday. An African-American Kansas City man who spent 43 years in prison for three murders he always said he didn't commit has been released. The judge ruled Kevin Strickland was wrongfully convicted in 1979. Strickland was 18 upon conviction. He's now 62 years old. Strickland told reporters he learned of his imminent release as he was watching television in his cell. I was actually watching a soap opera. And it... <laughs> they went across news break or whatever they call them, and, and I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. That's how I learned. You saw your own name on the screen? In the picture, yes. And then other inmates started hollering, and I heard them beating on walls and carrying on. Strickland said he would like to get involved in efforts to keep this from happening to someone else. He was convicted at his trial largely on the basis of testimony of Cynthia Douglas, the only person to survive the 1978 shootings. She later recanted her testimony and tried for years to alert political and legal experts to help her prove she'd identified the wrong man. She said police pressured her to identify Strickland. An eight-year-old boy is the sixth person to die as a result of a man driving his SUV into a suburban Milwaukee Christmas parade. A criminal complaint filed alleges the driver steered side to side with the intent of striking marchers and spectators in Waukesha. Daryl Brooks was charged with five counts of first-degree intentional homicide, a charge that carries a mandatory life sentence. The complaint says 62 people were injured up from the previous count, many of them, including children, remain in critical condition. Eight-year-old Jackson Sparks was the first child to die from the crash. The House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol insurrection has issued subpoenas to three extremist organizations, including the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers, as well as their leaders. It's an attempt by lawmakers to uncover the plotting and execution of the deadly attack. More than 30 Proud Boys leaders, members, or associates are among those who've been charged in connection with the insurrection. The Oath Keepers is a militia group founded in 2009 that recruits current and former military, police, and first responders. A federal jury says CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart pharmacies recklessly distributed massive amounts of opioids in two Ohio counties. Roughly 80 million prescription painkillers were dispensed in one of those counties, Trumbull County, alone between 2012 and 2016. That was equivalent to 400 pills for every resident. In Lake County, some 61 million pills were distributed during that period. A trial judge will decide how much each pharmacy should pay in damages. I'm Eileen Alfandari for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. On August uh, 2017, a white supremacist rally known as Unite the Right was held in Charlottesville, Virginia. The protesters were heard chanting, 
you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us, underscoring the great replacement theory that has been popular among not only white nationalists, but increasingly mainstreamed in um, the GOP. Uh, groups on the far right participated in the Charlottesville rally in August of 2017, including self-identified members of the alt-right, neo-Nazis, neo-fascists, nationalists, Klansmen, and numerous right-wing militias. Many of these participants chanted racist and anti-Semitic slogans and carried uh, weapons, Nazi and neo-Nazi symbols, as well as the Confederate battle flags. Unite the Right opposed the proposed removal of the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee from Charlottesville's former Lee Park, the Charleston shirt church shooting of 2015, where a white supremacist shot and killed nine black church goers. Now, on August 12th, uh, self-identified white supremacist James Alex Fields Jr. deliberately rammed his car into a crowd of counter-protesters about half a mile away from the rally site, murdering Heather Heyer a brave anti-racist campaigner who was just 32 years old at the time. The killer also injured 35 other people and fled the scene. He was arrested soon afterwards and was later tried and convicted in Virginia State Court of first degree murder, malicious wounding and other crimes in 2018 with the jury recommending a sentence of life imprisonment. The following year, Fields pleaded guilty to 29 federal hate crimes in a plea agreement to avoid the death penalty in this trial. And now a, a case has been going on in Charlottesville. And as I said earlier, and you heard in our news headlines, a jury uh, has awarded more than $26 million in damages after finding uh, the white nationalists who organized and participated in the rally liable on a state conspiracy claim and other claims. So let's go to a clip now uh, from CBS uh, summarizing the situation. The jury has reached a partial verdict in the trial of the men who organized the 2017 Unite the Right March in Charlottesville, Virginia. They found the defendants liable of civil conspiracy for planning the deadly rally, but the jury could not agree on every count. Joining me now for more on this decision is Nicole Skanga. She's a CBS News Homeland Security and Justice reporter. Um, Nicole, thanks very much for being with us. So what did the jury find the defendants liable of? Elaine, good to be with you. Now, two dozen organizers of the Unite to Right rally more than four years ago, uh, including some of notorious white supremacist leaders, including Richard Spencer, Jason Kessler, Christopher Cantwell. Well, they were found to have engaged in conspiracy to intimidate, harass, or harm ahead of that deadly August 2017 weekend. Now, the 11-member jury, as you noted, did not reach a verdict on two federal conspiracy charges, but they managed to find that every defendant here was liable for civil conspiracy. That is under Virginia state law. Now, the jury then went on to award more than 25 
million dollars in damages against 12 individuals and five white nationalists and neo-Nazi groups to the nine plaintiffs listed in this case here. And now nearly half of that money is owed by James Fields Jr. You might recall uh, he is serving time behind bars, serving life behind bars after he plowed his car through a group of counter protesters, killing 32 year old Heather Heyer and injuring scores of others. Uh, the jury found that all of the defendants here again engaging in conspiracy to harm, harass or intimidate and five beyond that five defendants here also found liable for engaging in racial, religious or ethnic harassment or violence. Among the defendants are some longstanding hate groups, including League of the South and Vanguard. They all owe $1 million apiece, Elaine. And Nicole, what exactly were the two counts that could not come to an agreement on? Yeah, those were uh, federal conspiracy charges. Um, and if the goal here was to bankrupt the defendants, well, certainly the attorneys for uh, the plaintiffs did just that. But the heart of this case really did center on those federal statutes, um, counts one and two. Uh, the law itself, the statute itself, known uh, colloquially as the Ku Klux Klan Act, dated back to 1871 in the Reconstruction era. And it was designed at the time to protect African-Americans in the South, but it was unearthed for this civil case um, to try to prove under federal law that the defendants here uh, conspired, entered into a conspiracy to commit racially motivated violence. Uh, you know, for the plaintiffs, unfortunately, uh, they did not reach a verdict. The defendants, of course, celebrating this fact. And in the note to Judge Norman K. Moon, the federal judge here, uh, the jury saying that they were deadlocked on these counts, that they did not believe that they were going to uh, a reach a verdict on those two here. Uh, we got sort of a preview of that yesterday when they had sent a question to the judge asking, well, what happens if we can't all unanimously agree on all of the counts? So this being a, a partial verdict that was reached away. All righty. And uh, just to show you how uh, deep this organizing uh, went for this particular rally among the far right groups engaged in organizing the march were the Stormer book clubs of the neo-Nazi news website, The Daily Stormer, The Right Stuff, the National Policy Institute and four groups that formed the Nationalist Front, the Neo-Confederate League of the South and Identity Dixie, the other neo-Nazi groups, Traditionalist Worker Party, Vanguard America, and the National Socialist Movements. Other groups involved in the rally were, well, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, specifically the Loyal White Knights and Confederate White Knights branches, the Fraternal Order of Alt Knights, the neo-Nazi white supremacist group Identity Europa, which has since rebranded as the American Identity Movement, the Southern California-based uh, Fight Club Rise Above Movement, the American Guard, the Detroit Right Wings, who were condemned by the Detroit Red Wings um, NHL team leader for the use of their team's logo, True uh, Cascadia, the Canada-based uh, alt-right Montreal and Hammer Brothers and anti-communist action. They were among, they likely were others. Those are the ones uh, that 
we know of. Um, what I'd like to do now is to welcome uh, Susan Bro, who has been through so much. She is the mother of Heather Heyer, the young woman who lost her life on August 12th, uh, 2017, when a car plowed into a crowd of counter demonstrators. Um, following the tragic incident, Susan Bro went on to establish the Heather Heyer Foundation, which was created to honor Heather's legacy of promoting equal rights for all people. The foundation has established a scholarship program to provide financial assistance to individuals passionate about positive social change. Susan Bro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ms. Prescott. It's an honor to be here. Yes. And uh, Susan, I have to ask you, um, you know, I'm a mom and I can't imagine the difficulty, how hard it has been for you over these past years, but also with the, with the trial uh, going on. How are you doing? How are you holding up with all of this? I have, <clears throat> like anyone who's lost a loved one, I have good days and I have bad days. And um, I do find that doing work that um, honors her memory helps. It, it, uh, if, if I can at least make some sort of purpose come out of this horrible uh, mess, then that's good. And uh, we were not party to the trial. I want to make that clear. But we did strongly support um, Integrity for America's case. Um, I was particularly pleased with how they used the defendant's own words against them. This was not a speculation trial or a try to find a cause and effect. It's using actual communications and emails and chat rooms and um, depositions from the defendants themselves, their own words is what convicted them. Right. And do you uh, feel, I, mean, I know the, the man who is responsible for killing your daughter and injuring so many, uh, he lost his appeal. And he, so there is, you know, when you lose a child or use a, a loved one and people say, well, uh, do you feel that you now have a sense of peace or justice? I, I don't know that that ever really happens. It's just like a hole in your heart, as you were just describing, that just doesn't go away. It's just something you have to uh, you have to live with. But how, that being said, how important do you think um, this case was, the fact that Integrity for America did bring forward this case and that there were damages, a financial damages awarded to the, to the organizers, although the, um, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, the federal charges, uh, they couldn't come to agreement on. Nevertheless, um, how important and what impact do you think the result of this trial could possibly have? I think that it was important for people to fully understand um, the amount of planning and the um, broad range of planning that went into this rally. This was not a few individuals who gathered up a few other individuals. This was a very carefully orchestrated event, um, and they intended it to be their launching point into tremendous growth. 
Um, I know a lot of people left the movement after the murder of my daughter. I know that um, a lot of people tried to distance themselves as rapidly as they could from the violence of the event after the event. But I think it was still important for people to have in documented court record um, the defendant's own words convicting them and uh, showing everything that had happened. I learned a lot, I know, uh, about Mr. Field's um, involvement in this as well. And um, as, as for the bankrupting them, I think that that's important because it sends a message. Um, Emmett Till's mother chose to do the same thing uh, with the KKK in, um, and in working with Southern Poverty Law Center previously. And I think this is a similar thing, that it's important to bankrupt the groups to help others to understand that when you choose to put your hate speech into action or when others are motivated to put that hate speech into action, there are consequences. There are serious consequences. Um, I, I'm thinking that they may try to retry the federal charges. I don't know for sure. I've heard rumors. I haven't actually talked to Integrity for America about that. So that's speculation on my part. Yeah, I did. I did hear um, news reports that they do intend to go back and, and try on those first two counts. Um, clearly, uh, taking into consideration that this uh, law, the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, is also uh, being used in um, given what happened on January 6th in Washington D.C. Uh, by some lawmakers and some others to try to hold. Uh, people to account. And there are others who feel that the federal charges are also important because if, uh, you know, um, people are worried that a precedent not be established, um, that then could be um, be problematic for people around the country who may be facing this kind of, of violence. I also want to tell our listeners who heard our intro that um, what happened in uh, Charlottesville was on the heels of the uh, Charleston Church shooting of, of 2015. I mean, it happened a, a couple of years later, so it was um, very, very raw. But uh, Susan, bro, before you go, I, I, I just want you to uh, tell our listeners a bit about your daughter, um, because she has now she's now a symbol, not only in the United States but around the world. And it is people are also noting that with all of the the protests going on after the killing of George Floyd, the ongoing protests of uh, the killing of uh, black people uh, by the police, this and this um, awful event uh, that happened in Charlottesville, that the people who were uh, killed on the other side of that were um, white, including your daughter, and then the two, two men who were killed uh, in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin. 
so it, it, you know that itself needs to be noted because the anti-racist movement is indeed a multiracial movement. But tell us a bit about your daughter and about the Heather Heyer Foundation. And I also want to, by the way, thank our listeners who uh, who have helped and I hope continue to help uh, to support uh, the foundation. But tell us, uh, Susan Bro, about your daughter and about the foundation. Uh, thank you, Ms. Prescott, and thank you for being uh, one of our early supporters. I know you had me on a few years as well to talk about this. Um, Heather was a normal 32-year-old woman. She was a little on the feisty side, and uh, I loved her for it. She was strong and independent, and, um, yes, yeah, she was somewhat private. She would be mortified that her name was now a, a symbol anywhere, but... Um, she was walking with the young women that she worked with in her office that day in support of Black Lives Matter. They stayed far away from the violence all day. The um, rally had been called off by the governor, and they were uh, part of a large crowd who had stayed on the opposite side of the downtown mall. And um, as they were walking back up to the downtown mall, a pedestrian mall, to celebrate, that's when he drove his car into the crowd. Um, and her aorta uh, was ruptured in her abdomen in four places uh, from the brunt um, impact of the car, and she bled out and probably died before she even hit the street. Um, and I strongly discourage people from putting her on a pedestal because when we try to put people on a pedestal, we excuse ourselves from being capable of doing what they did. And if you think about it, all she did that day was march in support of something that she believed in to um, show people that she cared about that issue. So that's something that any of us can do. We can all do the small things and we don't know what our impact will be when we do those things. Uh, the Heather Heyer Foundation, you can learn more about how we were formed at our website, www.heatherhirefoundation.com. And um, we can, um, hold on, another call is trying to come in. I have to decline it. Uh, we we can uh, learn how to uh, support uh, other people as they are already actively pursuing positive change. Uh, to date, we've given out about $30,000 in scholarships. We're giving out another 10000 in scholarships this year. this year. If you go to our website, you can learn as, uh, who can get those scholarships. Several of them are local, but we do have to offer to uh, other high schools around the country, as well as two to adults who are also in college or a certification program. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's through great support of people like your listeners who have uh, allowed us to do these great scholarship offerings over the years. 
And I really encourage you, we are going to post the link again uh, to the Heather Heyer Foundation on our website and really encourage our listeners to go there, go uh, to the website and really see what they what they can do. And uh, Susan Broby, know that you're up to your eyeballs. You're very busy. A lot of people wanting uh, to talk to you, given um, Charlottesville being back in the news with this case. So we know that you have to dash, but we really appreciate you taking the time uh, to be with us and to be such, uh, Susan Bro, such an example um, for uh, turning your grief and your suffering into something that's positive change with establishing the foundation and uplifting uh, the memory of your daughter. We really appreciate you. We appreciate your work and our hearts continue to go out to you. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ms. Prescott. All righty. Aye, aye, aye. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Always uh, so difficult uh, talking to these family members who have uh, lost their loved ones in this case, uh, have a higher, um, you know, run over basically and killed by a car. She was out um, in a protest supporting Black Lives Matter. And of course, the movement for uh, Black Lives Matter um, out you know, in force over so many years uh, protesting the loss of life of black and brown people killed uh, by police or by vigilantes. So we are also keeping our eye on the Ahmad uh, Aubrey trial. The jury, they are still in deliberations. We don't know when that verdict will come. And of course, that is the case of the um, the white man who basically followed him. He was jogging while black and they followed him and they killed him in a way that is so reminiscent of just the history of uh, vigilante uh, vigilanteism in the United States and harking back uh, to Trayvon Martin. But also uh, I saw an article recently I was glad to see about the sundown towns, the history of sundown towns in the United States. If you're a, a black person, you know what that is. It means if you're in a certain area, a certain town, you get out by sundown. And by the way, it wasn't only small towns in the South. I recall there were places when I lived in Brooklyn, New York, there was a section of Brooklyn um, that black people knew you had to get out by sundown. So quite a legacy here. We are going to take a, a short station break now. And then we come up uh, Shannon Rivers is ready to speak with us um, the, for Indigenous people. Thanksgiving is actually a day of mourning. He's a Native American spiritual uh, leader and a campaigner for Native American rights. And also we will be speaking with Colleen Thomas, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, the Faith Working Group in Los Angeles uh, did an event recently on Christian nationalism. And I think Shannon was also part of that event. So stay with us a lot coming up. We'll be right back.
that's a great sweet honey in the rock ain't gonna let nobody turn me around this is margaret prescott host of sojourner truth check out our website at www.sotrueradio.org and if you're a member of facebook you can like and friend us there our handle on instagram and twitter at So True Radio. And I would like to give a shout out um, to, we're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And I'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Charlottesville, Virginia. And internationally, I would like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Germany, where there is going to be a new prime minister uh, replacing Angela uh, Merkel. Uh, we are now going to uh, turn our attention uh, to, well, this holiday. Uh, a lot of people right now, uh, millions of people are, are gearing up. They're flying by car, by plane, by bus uh, for the Thanksgiving holiday weekend. It's been a, an official holiday in the United States uh, officially since 1863, although George Washington actually uh, called for a day of Thanksgiving uh, much earlier. Uh, before we welcome our guest to put this in some context here, I would like to um, share a clip that was read. We want to thank Irene Montantis, who actually recorded this clip. Irene, an indigenous woman, she's also a part of the Poor People's Campaign here in Southern California, part of the coordinating group, as is Shannon Rivers, by the way. And let's listen to this because it gives us background on the history of where Thanksgiving came from. The Thanksgiving America celebrates on the last Thursday of November was proclaimed by Governor Winthrop of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1637 to honor a massacre of indigenous peoples. The governor wrote that for the next 100 years, every Thanksgiving day ordained by a governor was in honor of the bloody victory, thanking God that the battle had been won. The first Thanksgiving meal in 1621 was no fairy tale story between the Pilgrims and the Wapanog, Pequot, and Narragansett people. And in fact, in October of 1621, one year before Tesquantum, a.k.a. Squanto, died, when the Pilgrim survivors of the first winter on Turtle Island, a.k.a. America, the Pilgrims who had a miserable crop that year invited a native named Massasoit to their meal. Massasoit followed the indigenous tradition of equal sharing and invited many from his nation. Much of the food brought to that meal was provided by the natives as they had much more of a bountiful harvest that year. There was no turkey, no squash, no cranberry sauce or pumpkin pie. The first meal was in essence the beginning of the end. And in 1637, members of the Pequot Nation gathered to celebrate the Green Corn Festival. 700 men, women, and children from the Pequot Nation came together to celebrate, and as they were sleeping in the hours, just before the sun rose, the English pilgrims surrounded and massacred all of them, shooting and beating those that confronted them and burning the rest. After the massacre of over 700 Pequot men, women, and children, the next day, the governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony declared a day of Thanksgiving and celebrated the killing of the Pequot peoples. Pilgrims fed off the momentum of their victory and continued to slaughter indigenous men, women, and children. A second Thanksgiving feast was had after another massacre of the Pequot peoples in Stamford, Connecticut. 
And oh my goodness, um, really, really difficult. Um, I'd like to welcome Shannon Rivers, Native American spiritual leader living on Tongva land. He is the director of programming for the American Indian Resurgence Initiative, Native American Native Pathways uh, to College. Uh, Shannon Rivers, thank you for joining us. Margaret, can you hear me? Yeah, I can, I can hear you uh, quite well. You're hearing me okay, Shannon? I'm hearing yeah. you fine, Margaret. Thank you. All right. You know, Shannon, I'm, I'm not of indigenous descent. I'm of African descent. But, you know, mm -hmm. just listening to that uh, clip uh, that Irene uh, thankfully read, you kind of cry your way through it. And, you know, this is the kind of, of real history. This this actually happened, that given the movement going on now in schools about so-named critical race theory, we all know it's about stories like this uh, not That's being correct. taught in, in schools. Um, so this is, uh, I, I just want your reaction uh, to that, actually, to the repression of that kind of history, because that clearly explains why, for, among a lot of indigenous people, Thanksgiving, uh, which hap takes place tomorrow, is a day of mourning. Shannon Rivers. Thank you, Margaret. Yeah, I, you know, when I was listening to your first segment, uh, segment with Ms. Um, and then the cause of her death by white supremacist. Um, this is a narrative that is uh, continuing in this country. A day of mourning, as we call uh, Thanksgiving, or is also known as Thanksgiving, um, is a day for us that is, that is both with mixed emotions, because we're like most pe people in the country. We want to join our families. We want to uh, sit down around the table and eat some good food. Uh, but when you look at the history this, of this day of mourning, and, and what does mourning really mean? Uh, it, is, it is in the dictionary. It describes describes to mourn or to mourn. Mourning is the feeling of deep sorrow and even regret. Um, but deep sorrow does not explain the history of almost of over 400 years of, especially here in the United States. In Canada, the relationship between settler colonialist, white supremacist, legal documents that caused us our annihilation, starting from the Wampanoag to the Narragansett to the Pequot, uh, it is very emotional day for many of us. In fact, some of us that live here in uh, Southern California and others. Uh, we'll go to activities and events that are just actually the opposite of celebrating uh, Thanksgiving Day or honoring what we call thanks but no thanks day. Um, so I will be in Alcatraz honoring the 52nd year of the taking of the island because, remember, Native people constantly are climbing up this hill of struggle. And this hill of struggle or this hill itself is laced and piled upon uh, this hill is we got to climb over this white supremacist, this narrative, this, this, this America has made around this day as a day of celebration and honoring the first contact and the first relationship with indigenous peoples. 
Yeah, and, and Shannon, um, when you look at what has happened in these United States, the United States government has taken more than 1.5 billion acres of land uh, from Native Americans this since 1776, according to University of Georgia historian. But Shannon also put that loss of land, the tremendous uh, loss of life that happened uh, not only in what is now called the United States, but throughout the Americas, um, north of the border of what is now called the United States, as well as south of the border. And the context of this uh, doctrine of discovery, which is uh, still in place, a lot of people sure. don't know about it. So we like to get the word out as, as widely as we can about it. Shannon. Right. Well, I'll, I'll try to, I know we only have a short time, but the land loss was uh, extreme. I think that, that if you go to uh, any nation or any, uh, any society, land is precious. And for Native people, the loss of land, I think we have maybe 2% of the United States left in our, in our, kind of in our hands, if you will, with reservations. But that is federal land. That is not our land. That is an agreement made by the United States government, whether it was through treaty, executive uh, uh, orders. Uh, so some of us that live on these reservations, that continue to live on these reservations, remember when your resources are taken or uh, whittled down to nothing, you're talking water, you're talking good soil, you're talking timber, you're talking hunting rights or fishing rights, you take away the livelihood of indigenous peoples. And so... So disease was a killer, but also starvation was a killer. The long, the, the, long, the, the longest walk of the Cherokee. Um, so all of these things have um, perpetuated the constant struggle that indigenous peoples face. When you talk about resources, if you don't have the right or proper resources to live, and you can see that today, whether it's in the inner city or urban areas, there's poverty. I think the Poor People's Campaign uh, addresses this and says there are 140 million Americans that are in poverty. Well, you know, most of them are eating crappy foods. They don't have uh, access to uh, good water or good resources. Um, so, I mean, this this is something that started with Native Americans, but even with with indigenous peoples, you see it happening within today's society. And then finally, the Johnson, the Johnson v. McIntosh case, which is which was established through the doctrine of discovery, removed the Cherokee from their land in North Carolina and certain areas. And, and you know, and 4,000 people died on that march to what is now called Indian Territory or Oklahoma. Uh, so 4,000, not only Cherokee, but other indigenous peoples that were forced to leave the East Coast and, and, and walk to, um, to Oklahoma were uh, essentially kicked out of their territory and lost all that. And if you look past the Mississippi or east of the Mississippi, there are really no reservations in that, in, on that side of the country. And most of them are on, on this side of the Mississippi, whether it's the Navajo Nation or places in Oklahoma, North and South Dakota. Uh, so, so you have this thing that is constantly hanging over our heads. Uh, Ruth Gay recently ruled a few years ago that the doctrine of discovery were still, they were not abrogated. They were still the, 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 the laws of which they utilize to continue to violate indigenous people's rights. You see it at, at Oak Flat, you see it at Standing Rock, you see it with Line 3. Uh, you constantly see this violation of indigenous human rights and the right to their livelihoods. 
um, and still use it, but the United States still use antiquated laws like the Doctrine of Discovery that are still very much in play. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you underscored those struggles. I mean, Oak Flat, the, the Apache stronghold, there is a case now awaiting a ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court uh, that's based in San Francisco related to Oak Flat, where the uh, Biden administration, the U.S. government pretty much admitted that, yes, we took the land um, from the Apache. But you know what? We have every right to do what we want with it, including turning it over to one of the largest uh, copper mining uh, companies in the world on a site that is uh, such a sacred place. All of this, of course, um, in the context of these papal bulls um, that have gone on for so long. Um, uh, Shannon, I'll be welcoming um, uh, Colleen, uh, Yvonne, in just a moment uh, about the event that I think you participated in uh, recently on Christian nationalism it was organized by the Faith Working Group of the California Poor People's Campaign, specifically the Los Angeles uh, Poor People's Campaign. And just, I know you have to dash because you have to hit the road. And I appreciate what you said that for a lot of people, a lot of people are going to be with friends and family, okay, tomorrow. Yeah. A lot of people are going to be using the opportunity to speak spend time um, with their loved ones that perhaps they haven't done in a while, and also to give thanks for, you know, whether it's surviving COVID or whatever people have to give thanks for. And that, and people, you know, in no way negates uh, the fact of this other history that we hope people will also uh, recognize. And looking at the 140 um uh, a million people in the United States of recognizing that the majority, I mean, indigenous communities are the most impoverished in the Americas. And it's very hard for people to wrap their heads around the fact that all of us are living basically on stolen land, on occupied land, right? Um, and But we do have to wrap our heads around it and see uh, what it all means. But uh, before uh, Colleen uh, comes on, I, I wonder if you just want to give us some final thoughts and, and anything you might have, too, about the relationship of this kind of Christian nationalism with what ha all of, of what we've been talking about, Shannon? Sure. Um, uh, the, the final thing that I'll say is that, yeah, we are giving thanks, but I think indigenous peoples, the way we see it, we give thanks for the plants and the animals and the land. And, and, and it goes to climate change and it goes to the white nationalist story, their narrative that they constantly build which is based on capitalism and greed. Uh, indigenous peoples don't see that. And, and white nationalism uh, has, has destroyed every aspect of America, meaning that they have a narrative that they push that, that America is such a great country. America is not a great country. We are, I believe, uh, you know, I mean, it's a great land. It's a beautiful land to me. It's my, it's my territory. We are on, you know, we live on stolen land. You live on stolen land. Those that you are not from here. But the reality is, is that we constantly, America has amnesia, and they constantly push a story that is false. And if we don't teach our children, we are doomed to repeat those wrongs of the past. And we constantly see that within this country. And I think there's also something that we need to talk about is white uh, nationalism and fragility, white fragility. And that has to do with, uh, we, you're not going to replace us. You're not going to replace our story. You're not going to replace something that we believe is so great. And it wasn't. It was based on greed, murder, and genocide, and the theft of our land. But indigenous peoples thrive. We are still here, 
and we are successful in many, many ways, in many levels. We are artists, we are doctors, we are lawyers, we are uh, writers, we are filmmakers. Uh, and it's amazing that, um, that, that you know, I can uh, meet people like you and see people like you and have you in my circle. And I appreciate listeners of KPFK. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Shannon Rivers. All the best in your journey uh, to Alcatraz and, and certainly uh, those of our listeners who are praying people will recall what you have said to also be thankful for what gives us life, the earth itself and all of uh, the, the plants and the animals. Um, and we're also animals. We're part of nature. People kind of forget that and look to have an entirely different relationship with the soil and with the whole of nature. Thank you, Shannon Rivers. Safe travels to you. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for joining us. All righty. And I would now like to welcome uh, Colleen um, Yvonne Thomas. Um, she is a Washington, D.C. native and the co-convener, now the co-convener of the Faith Working Group of the Los Angeles Poor People's Campaign. She earned her master's degree in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. She serves as a chaplain for the Los Angeles H. Belfield Hannibal Chapter of the Union of Black Episcopalians. Uh, Colleen, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Margaret. Having me, Margaret. Um, Colleen, I hope you had a chance to hear the previous uh, segment um, with with Shannon, but specifically, I'd like you to talk about this event um, that or that you were part of organizing of the Faith Working Group in Los Angeles. I mean, it, it's it's gotten uh, the links to it very, very widely viewed. Uh, tell us what the theme was and, and why it was so important to organize an event such as this. Colleen. Sure, yes. Well, we did uh, the Los Angeles Poor uh, People's Campaign Faith Working Group organized an educational uh, action, uh, a program to discuss the distorted moral narrative of Christian nationalism. We called it Constructing a Moral Narrative, Dismantling Christian Nationalism, recognizing that Christian nationalism um, is a distortion of um, Christian principles. And um, it was important to us as the faith working group um, of the Poor People's Campaign uh, because one of the uh, pillars, or as Reverend Barber um, and Reverend Liz uh, refer to them, the one of the interlocking injustices that the Poor People's Campaign focuses our action on is the distorted moral narrative of of religious nationalism. And in light of our previous administration, in light of the events of January 6th, um, at the Capitol, the topic of Christian nationalism has been uh, gaining more and more attention in the news media, and um, we talk often and always in our faith working group, well, how do we address this distorted moral narrative? How do we take action and realizing that in order to take action, we first have to come to a deeper understanding and uh, unravel the, the, the meaning of Christian nationalism. It's very complex. And unlike 
um, you know, racism, for example, which um, once existed kind of uh, uh, on in the fabric of our culture without real awareness of how it impacted us. Christian nationalism is in this early stage. It's been with us throughout history, but identifying it is not nearly as easy as racism or um, systemic poverty or ecological devastation. So we need, we realized we needed to have some conversations first to define Christian nationalism, to be able to notice it so that we can uh, develop ways, actionable ways to, um, to dismantle the distortion, so to speak. Right. And, and Colleen, uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about, we talked a little bit about in the earlier segment with, with Shannon Rivers, what we've talked about on the show has to do with the papal bulls and the doctrine of discovery, because what you're talking about goes uh, way back uh, the 14. 52, uh, 1455, and, and others when the Pope actually issued something called a papal bull. It was it's called a bull because apparently the stamp that was used was red, right? The, the wax uh, mm-hmm. stamping to make it official. But basically it said that European nations could go out in Africa, in the Americas, and seize and control the lands of indigenous people there and also enslave them, um, the, the, the quote-unquote non-Christian uh, people, right? So that history goes way back and is embedded actually in the rape of Africa with the slave trade, the colonization and the massacres of indigenous peoples uh, throughout the Americas and the taking of the land. But this doctrine discovery based on these papal bulls, that's still being used today, Um, whether it is the situation of the Apache Nation in Oak Flat and other you know, and and other areas. And and also, Colleen, I mean, we talked with Susan Bro, the mother of Heather Heyer, who was killed in Charlottesville, that horrible um, thing in in Charlottesville where people were chanting, Jews will not replace us, you will not replace us in the great replacement theory. Plus, um, recently you had an elected official on the GOP side saying, well, actually he thinks the United States should be a Christian nation. So, Colleen, this stuff goes really deep and um, it's a huge uh, discussion that needs to happen. Tell us a bit about who participated in the event that you, uh, Jenna Kyle and others helped to organize and pe- for those who have missed it, how they would be able to see it. Colleen. Absolutely. Well, I think the unique well, think uh, aspect of our event was that it was an interface or multi-faith panel of, um, uh, of, 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 of faith leaders participating in this conversation. And so um, it was moderated by Reverend um, Frank Alton, who is an Episcopal minister um, here in Los Angeles. And um, we had represented on the panel um, yeah, we had a, a couple of Christian clergy, um, Reverend Boyd, who hosted us at the first African Methodist Episcopal Church. We also felt like its location was important to the dialogue. 
Um, Many may not be aware, but the African Methodist Episcopal Church uh, came into existence as a reaction to racism that existed in the Episcopal Church, which was the Church of England. Richard Allen, who founded the what we now know as the AME Church, was an Episcopal Episcopalian uh, minister who realized that there was no place for him in that in that in that church, which was also impacted by systemic racism, and he founded a denomination that gave a home for African descendants to also connect with their 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 understanding of Jesus. Um, we had uh, Rabbi Neil Comas Daniels, um, a Jewish clergy um, from um, Beth uh, Shir Shalom here in Los Angeles. We had Tahil Sharma, who represents United um, Religions International. Tasneem Noor um, is a Muslim woman and also an interfaith minister with the Episcopal Diocese. Um, Shannon Rivers, your former guest, was representing our indigenous faith community, who, interestingly, we don't even acknowledge our indigenous brothers and sisters of having as having their own faith, as being faith leaders outside of a um, Western understanding of religion and outside of what we consider the major religions. Um, we don't say that they're indigenous spirituality is, we don't call it pagan anymore, but we still treat it as such in the way we tend to leave indigenous spirituality and indigenous faith practices out of the dominant conversation about about uh, religion. Um, and so that in and of itself, having um, not just Christians talk about this idea of Christian nationalism, we learn so much um, about the reality that whether or not, and I speak for myself as a uh, someone who identifies as a Christian, um, I learned that, you know, for those outside of it, it, the Christian faith, Christian nationalism, as Tahil Sharma um, shared with us, is is the only Christianity that most people know, especially outside of the Americas. I mean, and in a way, Christian nationalism is the only form of Christianity that even I know, Margaret. You know, I'm an African-American woman. I have African and indigenous heritage as well. So my ancestors also embraced the Christian religion of their colonizers. And as we understand with the papal bulls and the kind of um, the 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 demand or the um, invocation, if you will, of the Catholic Church to um, go out and make Christians of all pagan nations. Um, you know, I I even music it. Right. The music indicates that we are out of time. I'm really sorry about that. We're going to try to put up on our show your entire event. Uh, Colleen Thomas, thank you so very much uh, for joining us. And I'm sorry to have run out of time here for you. Um, thank you. Today's show was produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our audio engineer, Gary Baca, our assistant uh, producer, Romero Funes. That, that's the healing song by Lakota Peyote. That 
that you're hearing to take us out. If you've missed any part of today's show, you can contact the Pacifica Radio Archives. You all have a safe um, holiday season.